0: Welcome back, finally, to another episode of Bantu Book Review. Sorry for the wait, but we here. And our book this week was Ghosts in the Schoolyard, Racism and School Closings on Chicago's South Side. So this book was written by Eve Ewing, and it was really good, um, really heavy. So let's jump in. Um, Let's jump in. This book, we've got to start with the so what for this book, just because of the subject matter. Um, And so I'll start by saying that Eve Ewing is a historian. Um, She's concerned with real history, not revisionist history. The facts are what's most important in this book. And she is not only talking about history and facts, but she's telling a story. But she's the good kind of storyteller. She doesn't do the kind of storytelling that gets you in trouble. As a young person, or the kind of storytelling that many of our political representatives do, okay, they are spin artists with their alternative facts. But Ewing, on the other hand, is, is telling stories, but she's a truth teller. She gives the facts, the figures, and paints a picture so you can see the city come alive, the city of Chicago. It comes alive in your mind as she's walking you through the streets of Chicago and recounting all the ways that the city has changed over time. So there's a lot, there's a lot to this book, a lot of meat to this book, a lot of death, but um, what I'll say is that this book is essentially a recipe and not the good kind either. It's a recipe for disaster. She's telling the story of a, (laughs) a disastrous recipe. In this book, Eve Ewing articulates the ingredients of a really big, very complicated shit pie. It has dirt grime mold and there are like 10 different cooks in the kitchen and you know that's already a problem too many people in the kitchen but all these people in the kitchen who are contributing to making this pie imagine each of these people is contributing a different ingredient and they all have really nasty colds and one of them has an open wound and he's using his hands to make the pie and his feet too He literally put his foot in the pie and his crusty feet and he put his whole ass in the pie. In fact, he is an ass. He's an actual ass. And he and his friends garnish this shit pie with a little, no, a lot of bullshit. And then they package it and send it to Bronzeville as a gift and tell the residents of Bronzeville to be grateful. Don't take my word for it. Read it. It's all there. Ghosts in the schoolyard. So the pie gets there, right? And the people complain like, ooh, this pie is disgusting. It smells bad. It tastes horrible. My children are malnourished. I can't feed them with this pie. They're not getting what they need from this pie. I need better food to nourish my children. And the people who made the pie are like, what? That wasn't me. I didn't make the pie. It was the pie guys. Not my responsibility to clean it up. But you know what? We're just going to throw the pie away and get you a new one. So then the next time they send something, it's not a pie. They call it pudding. But it's poop this time instead of shit. So... Obviously, Bronzeville is still pissed, but the pie guy's like, dude, you guys are so ungrateful. Essentially, that's Chicago Public Schools. That's CPS. And there's a quote from the book um, that talks about the, the way that the city is structured, the way that CPS is structured. Um, Eve Ewing says CPS is currently structured to minimize opportunities for meaningful community informed decision making. The superintendent and the members of the school board are unilaterally appointed by the mayor without restriction. Already, this is a problem because it's not a democratic process, right? A single person is responsible for putting the heads of a really important institution in place. One guy. Um, There's another quote, because obviously in a book titled Ghosts in the Schoolyard, Racism and School Closings on Chicago South Side, we're going to be talking about racism. Um. So Eve Ewing says our society follows a pattern, churning out different outcomes for different people in ways linked to race. This happens with or without the consent, awareness, or intentions of individuals, and that's the biggest thing here. Her focus is impact, right? And she has some really important analogies that she uses throughout the text. Uh, the first one is this idea of a veil. And there are people who live beyond the veil and behind the veil and the people who make the policies and decisions are beyond the veil because they're not impacted by the decisions that they're making in regards to CPS. CPS is Chicago public schools. And then the people who are impacted, they don't have any agency or say in this decision-making process. They are behind the veil. They're living this actual experience. Um, And and what happens as far as the dynamic between the people behind and beyond the veil is that they don't necessarily interact, obviously, in the most productive of ways because there's bureaucracy that enables the decision makers to avoid having any personal responsibility or accountability to the people who are living with the decisions that they make. And so they don't acknowledge their role in the day-to-day lives and lived experiences of these people. So the veil is the first analogy. The second analogy is the violence in the city. We hear about the things that are happening in Chicago often. Violence all the time. Um, and and I'm recently a part of the city of Chicago as well. I just moved here. Um, and so I see a lot of that as well. But in this book, we talk about violence in the city, but it goes beyond the things that we hear about as far as gun violence and Chirac and all these things. Violence is a force that is as prominent in the streets as it is in the day-to-day lives of the people. Um, and e. Ewing talks about structural violence that is being used by key players to shape the city and its community in menacing ways um, that are, are terrible and inform the violence in the streets in a lot of ways. And finally, um, there's the analogy of ghosts. Um, and the ghosts refer to something that's unseen and in the case of some of the things that she's discussing in the book, the ghosts are, are deliberately ignored and the ghosts represent history in a lot of ways. Um, but there's a story to be told and an important history to be acknowledged that has been largely unacknowledged up until this point. So she has a quote that really resonated with me referring to the ghost analogy. And she says, in a way... Ghost stories serve as an important counter story. A ghost story says something you thought was gone is still happening here. A ghost story says those who are dead will not be forgotten. Something, someone is still here. These ghosts are stewards of lives marked by mourning. Mourning those lost to many forms of violence in this country. Excuse me. Mourning those lost to many forms of violence this country has invented to kill us. We mourn those killed by police. We mourn those killed directly or indirectly by the violence of hunger and desperation or the violence of poverty and poor health. We mourn those taken from us and imprisoned, And we mourn those institutions that have helped shape our sense of who we are. So those are the analogies. They're all really powerful. And like I said, they're present throughout the text. Um, But the most important thing that the author does in this book is ask and answer some really important questions concerning the state of public schools and the impact of public education and its related systems on people of color and black people specifically. She does all this with the regional focus. So this is specific to Chicago and the Bronzeville community, which is in Chicago. We're talking about a specific neighborhood. So some of the questions, some of the most in questions that kind of carry the text and and move the story is what is the history that brought us to this moment? How can we learn more about that history from those who have lived it? Who gets to make decisions here and how do power, race, and identity inform the answer to that question? What lessons can we draw from all this history to guide the way forward? And how can we fight and change things? In some of the answers that she posits, um there's community responsiveness rather than resignation to a predetermined fate and she talks about um this is a quote attention to agency to speaking one's own truth and to the presumption that a community may contain within its own wisdom the answers to its many conundrums i think that's so important because i feel like a lot of times we know exactly what's wrong in our communities and if empowered we can make the changes that we need to see um so she, she outlines that and, and expounds on that in the book. The other thing is that she encourages the fight. Um, we got to keep fighting and stay vigilant of the new methods of attack so that we, we don't get caught slipping. Um, that can't happen as easily when we're prepared and informed. And And one of the other things that she does, which I appreciate so much, is articulate that bias is not problematic when you're informed. You don't have to be solely objective in all manners, especially the matters concerning your own history and matters to which you've borne witness, right? Like there, are, there are times when you've seen a problem and because you have seen it, because it affects you, you're not objective. <laughs> you're biased and that is okay, right? There's an emphasis on sound judgment. But judgment is important. You can judge. You can make judgments, right? They don't have to be objective necessarily. As long as your judgment is sound, you have to make judgment calls and use your own good sense. Facts and figures alone are, are not always reliable or even relevant in every scenario. And so it's important that we are scrutinizing information that is made available to us. And also it's important that we understand that what is not being said is as important or sometimes most important. So she has this quote and she says, some readers may protest that my recounting of this narrative will not be objective, quote unquote, objective. Indeed, the story is not an objective one. I am not an objective observer, nor do I aspire to be. As critical race theorists have argued, claims to objectivity often serve as a camouflage for the self-interest, power, and privilege of dominant groups in U.S. society. And i just got to like snap my fingers to that because it's so true. When, when people harm other people, when, when they're cruel towards others, they don't call it cruelty. They don't call it being harmful. They give you a shit pie or poop pudding and say, you should be grateful because they fed you. And they mask their cruelty with, with euphemisms and, in. Other names like community development or revitalization, gentrification, which is all the new school version of displacement, colonization, and cruelty. Okay, there's talk of long term plans related to finance and politics, but what is omitted from these talks is the discussion of human impact. And the people who are affected know the impact. And this book tells the story of the human impact. Of school closures from the lens of human experiences. Um, The author says experiential knowledge, this is a quote, experiential knowledge of people of color is both a legitimate source of evidence and critical to understanding the function of racism as a fundamental American social structure. After you're gone, they'd prefer you be forgotten. Mourning, then, is how we refute that erasure. It's a way to insist that we matter. It's a way to remember. It's a way to remember. Absolutely. So here's the history that sets the stage. Um, I won't I won't say too much because I think it's important that you read the book and understand, you know, how the story flows. There's a lot more um, to to what she's saying than than what I'm talking about here. But this is some of the most important history that serves as the backdrop for this text. So. Bronzeville is a thriving city and considered to be the black metropolis of Chicago at a point in time. Um, And it set the stage for a degree of economic, political, and creative vitality for black Chicagoans. This was after we made meaning of the shit pie and the shackles of slavery and then the Jim Crow South. People relocated to Chicago and Bronzeville specifically. And there's a reason why it was Bronzeville, because we were contained, the black people were contained um, in that particular community. So then from 1917 to 1921, 58 bombs struck the homes of black residents, bankers who gave them mortgages, or real estate agents who sold them property. Then there was restrictive covenants, violence, Willis wagons, public housing demolition on a large scale, and then segregation All these things contain black Chicagoans into Bronzeville and then force them out between the 20s, 30s, 40s. And then the 50s through the 80s, the housing authority, there's more restrictive covenants that have certain stipulations for housing that essentially transforms Bronzeville into a city of children. And the culmination of all these events is what sets the stage for what ultimately transpires in the city. So there are centuries of segregation that fence the people in and then suddenly they're forced out and this is not acknowledged. Right. Um, then in 2013 there are a number of school closures in Bronzeville that took place as a result of policies rooted in racism. So there's generations of racist policy built on racist policy from previous generations. And it's racist because it disregards, controls, displaces black children and families in new ways, layered upon the callousness of the last. These are all uh, quotes from the book. Um, But there's this history, another quote. History of levying harmful policies against them, them being the people, the black people, and then blaming them for the aftermath, and then having the audacity to pretend that none of it really happened. (sighs) So... I just said a lot, um, I didn't say it nearly as well or present it nearly as well as the author who who builds this case over time. Um, but in my mind, there are a couple scenarios that that kind of help you to see what's happening in the book and and you might be able to relate relate to this. So the first scenario is this imagine there's there's a classmate who's constantly antagonizing you, and so. Finally, you get fed up, like, I'm tired of this, and you finally clap back. But then you get in trouble because the teacher saw you respond. And not only do you get in trouble for responding, but the teacher never addresses the initial act of aggression from your classmate that provokes your response. You're pissed, right? That's how it feels when black people get chastised for talking about racism by people who don't address the racist behavior of the person, people, or systems we're responding to in the first place. That's the first scenario. Still rolling with this classroom analogy, here's the second scenario. Okay, we're back in the classroom and your classmates antagonizing you. Again, bullying you, doing all these things to hurt you and and they've been bullying and antagonizing you for a really long time. They go from throwing paper balls at you to now they're throwing rocks at you. Sometimes the teacher sees it, but she never says anything. And then because she never says anything and she doesn't address it, it's okay, right? Nobody's doing anything about it. There's no consequence. So what happens is that more classmates join in throwing rocks at you. They don't like you. And they don't want you to participate in any of the classroom activities with them. Well, they're throwing rocks, throwing rocks, throwing rocks. And at some point, they've thrown so many rocks at you that they don't have to throw rocks anymore with their hands. They've got crafty and realized they don't have to get their hands dirty anymore. Because all the rocks that they've already thrown have become a wall that isolated you and separated you from everybody else. So now you can't participate. Mission accomplished because that's what they wanted. They didn't want to interact with you. You can't participate because this wall is now blocking you from accessing the benefits of the classroom. You've been complaining, complaining, complaining for a really long time. And finally, the teacher hears you. She hears you out and you're trying to tell her about all the rocks your classmates have been throwing. But the rock throwers say it's not their fault you're behind the wall. The wall is blocking you. And it's not their fault the resources and the people are on their side of the wall. And they say they didn't shut you out. It's not their fault. You can't get past the wall. It's your own fault. You can't get past the wall. But you know that they started it by throwing the rocks that made the wall. Well, the teacher finds out. Um, but it's, it's too much. It's too stressful. You're too loud. Um, you're disrupting the piece. So she kicks you out of her classroom and she sends you to the principal. And the principal's like, listen, this is this is too much, okay? And the principal calls the cops on you because <laughs> you're disturbing the peace. Um, and they just want the cops to take you to jail because you're being a menace and, and they don't want to deal with it. Well, when making the arrest, the cops just kill you because it's all too much and he's afraid because you're being really aggressive, you're really loud and angry. And that's that's the end of the scenario. That's the best I can do because, honestly, like... <laughs> it's just so simple. Like the wall in this analogy are all the systems that shut you out from the old school to the new school, from the rocks to the wall, from slavery to school closures to redlining and mass incarceration. The classroom in this analogy is the larger society with all the benefits that you no longer or never really had access to because you're black. <laughs> that's you obviously on the other side of the wall you're you're the black person um and the rock throwers are any number of people who were complicit throughout this entire process from the most active rock throwers to the people who stood by and, and didn't intervene right some people didn't throw the rocks but they participated via silence and compliance with all that was happening um so yeah in my opinion this is this is very similar to, to the state of this country and, and what has happened to lead us to this point. And these things are simple. Um, but the people who don't see it, they refuse to see it because they don't want to be implicated. They don't want to feel guilty. They didn't throw the rocks directly, some of them. But they still reap the benefits of of being able to hoard the resources of the classroom that you didn't access during the time that you were shut out. So... Yeah, man, deep sigh. It's just this big, complicated problem. Um, But you know what black people constantly do with shit? This is the so what. What happens when we get shit, as we have been getting, is that we turn it into something better, into something beautiful. We plant seeds and we use that manure that we're working with to grow and to blossom. We started with the shit pie, but that's not how it ends, right? We got chitlins, even though they nasty. Somebody like them. Pig feet, all the nastiest, grimiest food. Somehow we made it edible and fed our souls with it. And black people all over the place are making meaning of trauma and chaos and reshaping it and restructuring it to suit us. We've got writers, directors, creatives, entrepreneurs, engineers, and all these other professionals in every single industry just out here making the world a better place and unearthing the truth and using it as a tool to forge the road ahead. Shaping the future, y'all. Um, but this reframing is so important because we can't change the history, but what we can do is recognize what has happened in the past and pay homage in such a way that we preserve that history, but also reframe it with an eye toward change and resolution. So with that being said, my emotionally intelligent word of the day is inspired, appreciative. I've been... Getting informed after reading this book, there are so many reference texts. and and now I have so many more books that I've added to my list to keep learning about the politics and the history of of my new city. But I'm feeling inspired and and honored to be a part of this process of turning an ugly thing into a beautiful thing. My black is beautiful, man, I love black people. I really love us for real. And um, as for Hate It or Love It, I really love this book as well. I think it's really important. I think this author is important, Eve Ewing. Her voice is important. She is an astute critic of history. She's a writer, a professor, a scholar, and a cultural organizer. She's a sociologist of education, a historian. And what that means for this book, with her being all of those things and more is that she provides receipts in the form of sources, citations. We have reference material because her focus is impact, but it's all about facts at the end of the day. Um, And so with this book, there are so many more opportunities that I've found to learn and expand my knowledge beyond the pages of this particular book. So that's exactly what I'll be doing. Shout out to Eve Ewing for being solution oriented um, for compiling all these stories because we're hearing directly from the people in the community. Um, she's telling us what happens, what has happened, why it's happened. And she also posits community focused solutions to address the challenges of these lived experiences. She also constantly asserts the importance of accountability. Um, and acknowledging the history that has brought us to this present moment because we didn't just get here we didn't just arrive okay she has this quote she says the present is not inevitable things have come to be as we know them through human actors the present is not inevitable things have come to be as we know them through human actors absolutely true right um One thing that she also does is that she rephrases and reframes problematic messages that come from leaders in CPS who lack accountability and transparency. And I love that solution orientation. So shout out to her. Also, shout out, reading this book made me think of a podcast that I listened to. It's called Bronzeville. And there's this cast of all of our faves. There's the Tate brothers, Lorenz Tate, um, Lawrence Fishburne, Tika Sumter, Pretty sure Wood Harris is in there. I love him. Um, Ghost makes a cameo, aka Amari Hardwick. Well, really, Ghost is his, aka, um, and so many other people. But they tell this great story about Bronzeville, um, where they make it come alive, and um, they 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 bring Bronzeville to life in their podcast, and we get to see Bronzeville from from the lens of vitality, um, and. Lawrence Fishburne you know he has that real smooth deep voice so it, it just sounds so good it sounds so so good um and there's a quote in the book specifically that reminded me of this podcast here's a quote like so many black people in so many other spaces at so many times Bronzeville residents responded to white supremacy by shaping their space in their own image turning humiliating and dehumanizing segregation into exhilarating and rehumanizing congregation. So definitely check out the Bronzeville podcast because they do just that. The second shout out, third. One, two, three, yeah. The third shout out goes to, so it's kind of late, but um, Indigenous People's Day. It happens at the beginning of this month, October 8th, I believe. Um, and it's rebranding Columbus Day. And I think that's so important because Indigenous Peoples Day, again, does this thing of refocusing and reframing an ugly history. And it tells the whole story of, of what happened. We're celebrating, you know, the history um, by highlighting the true victors of that moment in time. Instead of, you know, putting Christopher Columbus, the colonizer, front and center, we acknowledge the violent history of European colonization and the genocide and terror inflicted on indigenous people and celebrate them for their resilience, right? We're not centering Christopher Columbus's ashy ass, but rather Native Americans and the people who have persisted through all manner of terrorism for several centuries in this country. Also shout out to Gene Demby. He's a journalist and uh a co-host of the Code Switch podcast. He got a shout out in the book, um, because he visited his hometown and found that one of his old schools had been shut down. And, um, that's unfortunate, but shout out to him because Code Switch is a really great podcast. So check that out too. And, um, yeah, man, that, that's it. No, no. One more shout out. Last shout out goes to um, there was so much covered in this text, but she shouts out, e. Ewing, the author shouts out the Ubuntu philosophy, um, uh, which I love. It's one of my favorite philosophies and it's referenced in this text. And, um, it's a Southern African philosophy that is frequently translated as I am because you are. Um, and the whole idea is that the humanity of each person is connected to the humanity of all other people people which is so true um, and so important but I could be here all day all night talking about this book um, go ahead and read it don't take my word for anything the facts are all in the book they're outlined thoroughly very clearly and in a engaging way um, So you guys can hit me up with your takeaways if you read the book, your lessons, your testimonies. Um, And I just want to say that this, this book really highlights what Bantu Book Review is all about as far as reclaiming our history, reaffirming our humanity, and reimagining our future by telling and retelling our stories in our own words, on our own terms, for our own good. This book is really what it's all about. So... Like I said, don't take my word for it. Go ahead and read it, and then tweet me at Bantu Book Review and tell me what you think. I will be checking in with you very soon for the next one. Thanks for listening guys.